Happy Memorial Day to everybody. I guess Memorial Day is actually tomorrow. So in advance of not seeing most of you tomorrow, uh, I do wish you a great weekend. Thank you for your service. We, uh, I, I'm privileged, firstly, to be a veteran. Um, but more importantly, it's, it's a huge privilege that I would have a church full of people who, who serve in, not just in the military, but I mean, we got all services represented here. More than that, we've got some um, some GS uh, employees represented here, and really government employees. So this is a, a unique, we are a unique church, maybe even an anomaly, um, probably not an anomaly, but it's just, it's neat how God has brought you all together. And uh, so collectively, I say thank you for letting me be your pastor. More importantly, thank you for your service in the various ways that you serve our country. And for the many of you definitely who raise your hand and vow that you will give your life in her defense. That's, uh, that's, a no, that's as noble as you can get. All right, we're going to continue in the Ten Commandments today, and we find ourselves in the Sixth Commandment. So go ahead and break your Bibles out. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. We're going to read uh, the first 17 verses together in chapter 20, just to remind ourselves of what God has said to his people. And then we'll focus in on verse 13, which is the sixth commandment. We'll read these out loud. If you don't have a Bible, there's one down the center aisle of seats under the chair. Grab it. Use it as we're working through the scripture today. Uh, more importantly, if you need a Bible, you can take that with you. And of course, you can cheat by looking at the screen. All right, let's read together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who, keep, who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or your male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you for the gathering of your church, for uh, your word that's light and life to us. We pray that we would hear you speaking to us as your word is, is read and preached, your gospel is proclaimed and applied to our lives. God, we uh, 
We pray that you change us by your gospel and that we would grow closer to the image of Jesus that you've destined for us to be. And we pray this in his great name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Before I start, I, I forgot some shout outs. All right. So I got my this guy right up in the front with a bald head. This is Matt Morgan. He's the pastor of Resting Community Church. When I was gone two weeks ago, I was at his church because he's on sabbatical this summer. And uh, he's my coach. So everything I know about church planning, it's his fault. <laughs> All right. So this is a man that I love. And uh, it's a privilege to have you and your family here today. Uh, I got another shout out, Basil Cantonzaro. Basil's a good friend of mine from all the way from Fayetteville, North Carolina. Basil, uh, Basil and his family were part of our congregation for a year while he was at the, the War College. And recently, uh, um, the Army moved him back down to, you know, like the Army always does, move him away. So it's good to, he's riding his brand new Harley up here in the, the Rolling Thunder stuff. And so uh, yesterday, he, he actually let me look at it from my, from a distance. Um, so glad to have all of you, but especially my good friends there. All right, so we're looking at the Ten Commandments, and today we find ourselves at the, the Sixth Commandment. The, the Sixth Commandment, do not murder, is, is one that we all have a little bit of agreement on, right? It's, it's one of those, like, well, you know what? I think I got at least one of them that I have not, I've never murdered anybody. Now, there's no society in the world that you will find where there isn't some kind of a prohibition or probably a legal human code uh, that's been enacted that says you just probably shouldn't just outright kill somebody. That's, that's worldwide. Um, but hopefully as, as we've delved into these Ten Commandments, you know it's, not, it, it's probably not safe for you to make the assumption that you've not violated the commandments. And this one is amongst those. In fact, I would dare to say many of us violate the sixth commandment and what it means at the depth that Jesus gives us the meaning, and we probably do it every day. The sixth commandment has a range of violation from the person that commits cold-blooded murder to those who uh, are just cold-blooded people and murder people with their mouths. And that's what many of us do. Uh, it violates not just uh, uh, people through physical assault, but through emotional, or as Jesus would say, soul assault. And so Jesus takes this command right where it should be. He takes it to our hearts. So that's where we're going to end up today, but we've got to get through uh, some preliminary stuff first. I want to ask two questions uh, of this particular text and, ask, and answer it from our Bible. And those two questions are, uh, what does the commandment forbid? And the second is... What does the commandment require? Uh, this is what the commandment forbids. Uh, the, the confusion with the sixth commandment really is in regards to what does killing mean. The Hebrew word for, uh, the Hebrew word translated don't murder refers to the unlawful killing of, of human life. And so very directly what the sixth commandment forbids is the unjust taking of an innocent life. And so... Here's some specifics. It applies to murder in cold blood. It applies to manslaughter, uh, those a rage that would end up in someone losing their life. It applies to homicide and all of its extremes to include negligent homicide um, from recklessness or carelessness. Um, perhaps the best way to translate this verse, and I think the NIV does translate it this way, is you shall not kill unlawfully. 
That's what the sixth commandment forbids. But this is really where the confusion begins. Because, of course, I mean, we're human beings. And we don't necessarily always follow God's rules. And there are instances in our present day culture where us as humans and the law codes that we create actually condone things that God in the scriptures don't condone. Let me give you a couple examples. For example, a government may make it lawful to cleanse and exterminate a race or a sect of people. Of course, the Bible does not condone that at all. We saw that in, for example, um, genocide in Rwanda a few years ago. A, a government or a doctor may, um, may believe it's lawful to take the life of the unborn, abortion obviously, or the elderly or the disabled, or allow someone to take their own life, euthanasia, where, of course, the law of God does not condone those kinds of actions either. And really the basis of the, this notion that that we can decide value or worth comes just from our own sinful humanity. We don't want anyone telling us what to do, and we like to decide what we're going to do based upon what we think is valuable or what has worth. This is what God comes back and tells us really throughout the, the testimony of Scripture. Human beings, we have no right at all. Um, we have no authority, but there's nothing in us there's no nothing. There's no wherewithal in us for which we have the uh, the ability to decide what has value and what has worth. Only God does. But, but here's the problem: we see this every day in our lives. Every day we pick out things that that happen to us, things that we see that we choose to like, things that we disagree with, and we will attribute value or worth to them. And sometimes, a lot of times, that that. Uh, that interferes with God, what God says uh, to us about his world um, in his word. And so, uh, really, we have the propensity to distort what value and worth is to, uh, to discredit the very things that God has told us. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible has this assumption that there is one author of life, and he alone has the wisdom to know when it's appropriate to take a life. And so the, uh, the Bible then, and thus the people of God, have always recognized that there are some situations, I'm going to name them for you, where the taking of a life is not only permitted, but it's actually warranted. Three quick examples. The first would be self-defense. Self-defense would be you protecting yourself, your family, or your possessions from attack. And there's both Old and New Testament precedents for this. Flip over two, uh, two chapters to Exodus 22, verse 2, and we read these words. It says, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt, blood guilt for him. And so what the, the Old Testament command is basically telling us is that if, uh, if someone comes into your house and you take something and you bludgeon him, bludgeon him to death, there's no impunity. You're not going to be held guilty for this person's death. Why? Because he was uh, potentially attacking you, your family, your property, and your stuff, uh, not knowing what he uh, intended to do. There's a New, Te New Testament version of this, Matthew 24, 43. This is what Jesus says. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the, the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Context is, is important here. Jesus is talking about the end times. He's talking about, uh, he's talking about himself coming back. And 
What we learn in Matthew 24, above all things, is that in regards to what happens at the end of the age, we're supposed to be ready. No one knows the day or the hour that Jesus is coming, but we're supposed to simply be ready. And Jesus says, you need to be ready like someone that knows uh, a thief is going to break into your house. And notice, he doesn't say, welcome him in, give him coffee, and have a talk with him to try and talk him out of, out of doing what he has intent to do. He says, I would have stayed awake and would not have let him come and let my house be broken into. I, I read, I, of course, I'm, I'm not a pacifist. And so I read that as Jesus saying, do whatever you got to do to protect yourself, your loved ones, and, and your property. I, I guess it's kind of a, weird to have a pastor that used to serve in the army, isn't it? Here's a second example. Second example of where lethal force killing someone would be lawful. Lethal force by police and capital punishment. There's surely lots of disagreement in our culture and in the church in regards to both of these. The national discussion in our country right now is, do, do our actual police force have too much authority and are they exerting too much force against select uh, parts of, of races? I mean, that's, that's the national discussion. Uh, D.C., Baltimore, Chicago are amongst those target cities that have pushed the, uh, the rate of homicide nationally up 12% over the last year. And there's not a policeman in our country that doesn't feel scrutinized when they are even thinking about using force against someone that's committed a crime. I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the place that we live in in our country. In regards to capital punishment, there are some that would say the Old Testament standard of of capital punishment has been superseded by Jesus, that Jesus, Jesus has a better ethic. But as we read on, passages like Romans 13 seems to lead us into a different direction where the, the Apostle Paul says, reflecting on the authority and the role of the state. Let's look at Romans 13, verses 1 through 4. Here's what Paul says. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's good, and you will receive his approval. Verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he the state does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. You see that word avenger there? All you avenger fans? I mean, God is, he's like saying, all right, go to your movies and spend your money on all that, all that stuff because it's real. So, I mean, what, what, is, what is Paul saying here? He, scripture is saying that God ordains human governments and their use of deadly force as a way of protecting life. And so capital punishment is presented in Scripture not as an assault on the image of God, but it's rather the defense of that image. And of course, whenever I say lethal force and capital punishment in a crowd even like ours, uh, I could potentially open up a can of worms. I'm not trying to do that, and actually, I'm going to stop talking about this. And if you're going to talk about it on the side, we can. All I'm commenting on is basically Scripture says Old Testament, New Testament, 
uh, that a government is given the right to justly punish a murderer. Paul would go uh, further and say that God, God gives them this right because of an act of mercy. There's sin in our world so that on the earth, the preciousness of life must be preserved. And this is the way we preserve it. That's a third example. And that would be just war. And for those of you who are in the military, uh, definitely those of you who are, are officers and gone through training, you've heard at least a little bit of this. Again, I refer to, to Romans 13 here. Paul sets a precedence, particularly verse 4. Look at verse 4 one more time. For he, the, the state, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoing. Um, Particularly, look at that word, sword. He does not, the state, the government does not bear the sword in vain. The Bible teaches that it's not unlawful to kill enemies in wartime. And really, this, this is a precedent to say that the government can use lethal force for its protection and the protection of its citizens and its borders as it wills. Um, Christians since the days of, of Augustine have supported this idea of just war, that a war is, uh, that war is necessary um, as long as it's just. What's a just war? Uh, it has to be waged by a legitimate government for a worthy cause with purport, uh, force proportional to the attack against men and women who are part of the armed forces, not civilians. And so the principle behind um, behind just war is that because of sin in our world, uh, war is, is necessary. We can't get away from it. You have people who are bent on wrongdoing because of uh, the deceitfulness and the evil in their hearts. And I think here's what Paul and, and really the, the testimony of Scripture is saying. There are cases where the most loving, life-protecting thing a nation can do in defense of its people, in defense of its borders, in the protection of its, its interests both and its resources, both uh, locally but also abroad, is actually to go to war. All right, three quick examples of that. Uh, and really what I was just meaning to show you is, is that the Bible does condone um, uh, uh, killing. It actually, is, it's not morally wrong. It, it, there are cases where it's just. Here's a question we should ask ourselves, though. We per, perhaps should ask ourselves, why does God permit some kinds of killing? Why does God say that some um, acts of killing are actually lawful? And here's God's reply. At least in the three examples that I've just given you, the goal of, of, of lethal force, capital punishment, the police doing their job, just war, of, of defending ourselves the goal is not necessarily killing and the taking, the destruction of life. The goal is the preservation of life. That's where scripture goes. The sixth commandment preserves the sanctity of life. It's all about, it's pro-life. This is a pro-life command from God. And really it goes back to the discussion, the short discussion that we had of, of value and of worth. Who gets to decide what that is? John Calvin in uh, his most important work, the, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, says this. He says, our neighbor bears the image of God. To use him, our neighbor, abuse our neighbor, uh, misuse your neighbor, is to do violence to the person of God who images himself in every human soul. These are great words by John Calvin. 
Um, but he's not making this up. He's simply regurgitating what the Bible has already said as far back as Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Here's a, here's a, this is true. Um, in most of these commands, God had given them the precedent for the command before he formally gave it to them at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20. And this is one of the cases. God had already told Israel not to murder. Okay? He had already told, talked to them about the preciousness of life uh, before they get to Mount Sinai. And he does that in Genesis in chapter 9, verse 6. Look, look at what he says in verse 6. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Context here is important. Um, God had just, in chapter 8, flooded the earth with water, rained uh, 40 days and 40 nights. And then it took 150 days for that water to subside, and everything that was not on that boat with Noah um, perished. It, it died. And so immediately when the water subsides, uh, you know, God settles the ark, and they come off, the, come off that big boat, and God talks to Noah really about the, the preciousness of life. He gives them really the, the creation mandate all over again. Uh, be fruitful and multiply. You have authority on the earth. And then he specifically talks to Noah about the preciousness of life. And God says this. He says the price for taking life is life. What is he saying? He's like, no one can take life without that person's life being taken. God is setting a precedence for life. He's, he's saying, I'm a pro-life God. Now, some of you, some people, perhaps some of you, would point out it's ironic that anyone, God included, would, would, would condone the taking of someone's life who takes a life. It, it just sounds cruel, doesn't it? But here's God's reply. It may be ironic, but it doesn't mean it's unjust. And justice is important with God. Um, this is kind of off the subject of, 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 of murder and the Sixth Commandment, but it's important to say. Theologians will say that God has ordained three things. The family the church, and the state. Three entities that, that help us do what God has called us to do on the earth. John, uh, John Scott preached on the, the fifth commandment two weeks ago, talking about the family, honoring your father and your mother, that your, that your days may go long in the land. And, and so the, here's what scripture says to us about the family. It says the family is the fundamental unit of society. If the family is healthy, society is healthy. Why do we need families? Why do we need um, the, really the protection of, of families in our land? Because if we don't have families, the society goes to H-E double hockey stick, right? I mean, we see that. That's, that's alive and well in our country. And for the last two decades, there's been an attack on families, particularly families in America. Uh, the second institution will be the church. The church is not a building. The church is people. Jesus in Matthew 16 will say, I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And so he does do that. While he's on earth, he institutes the church, and we see that come to fruition in the book of Acts, and the, the rest of the, 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 the New Testament is the unfolding of how the church comes together to end up in what we are today. Paul would say in Ephesians 3 that uh, through the church, 
the manifold witness, the, the, the testimony of God to the earth would be made known, basically to the, the spiritual authorities, but really to all the earth. He would use people like us to make himself known in the earth uh, by our witness through the, the, the words of the gospel. The church is an important entity. And then he has, and then the third institution would be the state. Um, in the Bible, God deals with us as individuals, but mostly as cities and, and, and nations. Okay, so the word state really isn't in the Bible, but we get the concept through how God deals with us, cities, nations. And the state uh, is the organization by which God would exert force for justice, among other things. Obviously, the, the state is for our organization and for the leadership of the families of, and tribes of people on the earth. And so this idea of justice is important to God. God, give, he, dele he delegates authority to us for justice so that we would be able to exert force to deter evil. Is there evil on the earth? Absolutely. How do we deter evil? We exert force. Not only that, but just the principle of justice itself. God is for justice. When Jesus comes back, he's going to uh, avenge um, God and all his enemies, firstly with, uh, with wrath for those that don't believe him, but also for justice. Justice is an important concept in the Bible. God does not give individuals the right to avenge, but he does give that to states. And so back on this idea of life, what makes life so precious? It's this. Every human being is made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. We're all made in the image of God, male and female. God has put his stamp on every one of us. I mean, almost like a great artist would paint a painting, um, you know, and then take a brush and then write his name at the bottom of that. I mean, that's the way God has crafted you. He's signed his name to the great work of art that you are. And to do damage to a life is to deface one of God's masterpieces, you being the masterpiece that God has created. And so all that to say, if you would accept, even in a, in a, a modest way, that the sixth commandment preserves the sanctity of, of, of human life, this means that this commandment has um, really important implications for contemporary society, for, for where we live right now. Namely, there are some culturally accepted ways of taking and ending life that simply are non-violent uh, non forms of murder. Among these, abortion, the, the, the killing of, of babies in the womb, infanticide, that's, that's the, the, the taking of a, a, the life of a child before that child even one years old. We see that in, in, in some countries that, that favor having male children born over female children born, infanticide, euthanasia. That's the, um, the, the killing of persons who uh, have terminal diseases or, or at the end of their life and se severe disease, great illness, in a lot of pain. Uh, it's, it's, it's those kinds of assistance with them. And then all kinds of assisted suicides. And the, here's the problem. These are becoming exceedingly common, definitely in our country, but also around the world. And more so, in some cases, 
all of these nonviolent forms uh, of taking a life uh, have become, I mean, they've gained legal protection. They've become, they've become legal to do them. And I would say all of these are forms of murder, violations of the Sixth Commandment. This is where church history is important. We're not, a, we're not Christians on an island by ourselves living in this day and age. We are connected through the scriptures and the, the testimony of saints through all of time to those who've gone before us. And Christians throughout the, the decades, the hundreds of decades, have always concluded that an unborn child is a person made in the very likeness of God from the moment of conception. What's true about an unborn child is true of all God's children, the young and the helpless, the elderly and the infirm, the diseased and the disabled. We are all made in the image and the likeness of God. Every life is precious in God's sight. None can be discarded, all must be preserved. And I think this means that as Christians, we have a right. We have a right to oppose abortion. We have a right, a duty even, to oppose infanticide, to, to oppose euthanasia, to oppose assisted suicide and all of its myriad of, of ways that it happens. Why? Because God and God alone is the author of life. He's the Lord of life, and he alone has the right to determine when it's time for someone to die. All right, all that to say, what does this commandment forbid? It forbids the unlawful taking of life in all of its forms. All right, I'm going to get a little louder here. What does the command require? That's the second question we want to ask. So Jesus later in the, in the, uh, the New Testament says, he says this. He says all the commands, all the commandments in the Old Testament of God boil down the two, loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself, right? And so in a sense, we've already seen that, that the first four commandments point us vertically. It tells us how we're to get along in our relationship with God, okay? Uh, the fifth commandment stands in the middle. Uh, as we honor our parents, we are both, as a young, young child, honoring God, but also learning how we're to get along with the rest of society. And then the last four commands really deal horizontally with how we're supposed to get along with our neighbor. And this is the first one that, uh, that Jesus uses to talk to us really about what we should be doing uh, as human beings in relation to, to other people. Um, and so the New as the New Testament applies this command in every sense, what Jesus is doing is he's penetrating our heart. He's not going to reinterpret this, uh, uh, this command, but he's going to apply it to the root of where murder happens. He's like, if you, if you go back, before you murder somebody, there's a lot of things going on in your heart. There's rage, there's envy, there's hatred, there's anger, there's vindictiveness that you need to deal with. How do you get to murder? You go through that line of all that stuff before you get there. And some of us do that every single day. All right, so... Uh, to find out what this command requires, we're going to go uh, to Matthew 5 and look at one example. Matthew chapter 5, four verses here. Jesus is in his Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read four verses and then uh, I'll, I'll comment after that. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. 
So if you are so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. All right, context here is important. This is uh, Jesus again um, giving his Sermon on the Mount. And really the mega theme of the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God being God in and ruling and reigning over his people uh, in the place of, of his choosing. In a sense, the, the Garden of Eden was a, a, you know, a mini kingdom of God. And we see the, the nation of Israel uh, as the people of God, God reigning over them. Another example of the, of the kingdom of God. And then Jesus comes and he says, hey, I brought the kingdom with me. And guess what? I'm going to redefine what you think about life. Because the kingdom, you know, a lot of times we come to Christianity and we think that Christianity is just one amongst a number of religions. We think Christi- the, the goal of Christianity is to, is to make it so that I behave better, that I, that I do, and that I'm a better person. And those are manifestations of the Christian life. But that's not really Jesus' goal. Here, here's what Christianity is trying to do with you, in you. Christianity is inviting you into a different kingdom. Have you ever thought about that? You're invited to live differently under a different rule uh, and to be in allegiance with Jesus and how he presents life and the world. And so in the kingdom of God, you win by losing. In the kingdom of God, you're first when you're last. In the kingdom of God, you gain life when you lose it. And when you enter the kingdom of God, it ultimately changes the way that you view the world, that you view God, and that you even view yourself. It's, it's to live on a higher plane, but it's also to be more aware of your sinfulness. And that's where Jesus goes right here in this text, really in all the Sermon on the Mount, but particularly here to our, uh, as, uh, as it relates to us in regards to anger and, and murder, as Jesus will lay it out for us. Here's what Jesus says about us. He says, you're all self-righteous. You think you're better than you are uh, in in many ways. And and Jesus is constantly addressing the areas of our life for in which we are self-righteous. And one of those is this idea of of murder. Jesus is going to say, hey, contempt for other people is just as if you've murdered them. Anger towards other people is just as bad with God as being a murderer. In fact, anger is like this acorn that you might take, plant in the ground, you know, Mother Nature waters it, and that thing grows into this full-blown tree, and and pretty soon you're the biggest tree in the yard, and you got rage over everything else that's around you. That's, That's what he shows us about anger. He says, anger is scandalous. You ever met the person that, uh, that admits, you know, I, I do bad stuff. All right, I'll admit it. I, I, I do some bad stuff. But then they say, at least I'm not an axe murderer. I mean, a lot of times we categorize the, you know, the level of, of bad things that we do. Here's what Jesus is saying, particularly here. He's saying, uh, in regards to the sixth commandment, all of us are murderers. You might not take an axe out and like slay somebody with it. But you're slaying all kinds of people with that tongue in your mouth. And it's and it's being wielded all over the place. All right. So let's look up. Look at a couple verses. Verse 21. When you uh, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable 
to judgment. Jesus is, uh, he's not reinterpreting the sixth commandment, don't murder. He's contextualizing it. He's, he's dealing, as Tim Keller would say, he's dealing with the sin behind the sin. All those things that lead up to me doing this one particular sin. And he defines murder more narrowly. Honestly, he's defining it uh, more narrowly than most of us in this room are comfortable with. And the first thing he says is murder is contempt. Verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Three words that he points out there. Anger, insult, fool. The word anger in the Greek describes like the process of anger. Uh, It's like you take a pot, put water in it. Put it on the eye, turn the eye on, and you got that slow boil coming. So you're going to cook some rice, boil an egg. You know how that water sort of simmers up until it's all, all boiling? He's like, that's, what, that's how your anger is. And so he says, if, if your anger is, is like this boiling process of anger with your brother, you're, I can already judge you because you're, you're like this simmering hotness. I mean, you guys get, get the point? He's like, you're... You're like boiling over to, uh, to a point of being hot. And then he uses the word insult. Now, insult, uh, simply, you're calling somebody a nobody. In the Greek, it's the word raka. And that's a term indicating abuse. And so he's saying, when you insult, insult somebody, it's, it's as if you're tearing them down with your, you're slaying them with your words. You're, you're committing verbal abuse by the words that you use. And then he uses the word fool. And I have, to, I have to admit, I use that word a lot, all right? And I, I use it under the guise of, you know, the Proverbs 1 through 9, talk, it, it juxtaposes uh, wisdom and folly. And a fool is a person who knows what to do and doesn't do it. But here, he's saying, you can use this fool, and, and you can use it in a way that it just cuts people to the core. Particularly, uh, you, you can scorn a person when you use that word. When you use a person, when you say a person is a fool, you're saying that you're cool and they're not. You're saying, I'm important, you're not important. And what Jesus is saying, when we use all three of these words, especially, I mean, he uses the word brother three times, especially when you use it to those who are of the faith, what you're doing is you're looking down on them with contempt. And guess what that is? It's murder. It's just like murder. And then he gives us another example. Verse 23 and 24, he says, murder is unreconciled relationships. I won't read it. Jesus is presenting a scenario. He's saying, suppose you come into church and you're worshiping. Tiara is singing a great song. He's like, man, she's got a great voice. And you're entering into worship. And then the pastor comes up and starts preaching. And the thing that happens when you're supposed to be worshiping happens. God speaks to you. He speaks to you by the word. He speaks to you by his spirit. And something that the pastor says just cuts to your, cuts to your core. And you realize, oh, no. There's, there's unforgiveness in my heart. Oh, no, I've sinned against that person. You know, all these things come to our minds because the Spirit of God is, is doing what the Spirit of God can only do. He's surfacing those issues wherein we know what the Bible says, but we haven't aligned ourselves with the Bible. And so this is what he says. He's like, all right, so don't be a hypocrite. Go get your sin right. That's what he's saying. When he says, leave your gift at the altar, he's saying, Get your life right. How do we get our lives right? 
Repentance and faith. First John 1 John 1.9. All right? You ask God for forgiveness. He forgives you, and he gives you the gift of, of repentance. That's being able to see your sin, turn from it, and turn to Jesus. But then he says, you also got to go the extra mile. You got to go the extra step. Do your part. What's that? It's being reconciled to your brother. The truth is, we can't make reconciliation happen. We can only control ourselves. But this is what Paul says, Romans 12, 18. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What's Paul's exhortation to us? Do whatever you got to do to at least do your part to be reconciled with all the people uh, that you are around in the world. Murder is like an unreconciled relationship. So here's a reflective question for you. Do you have any unreconciled relationships? If so, you committed a little bit of murder there. Is there anybody that you aren't reconciled to for whom you haven't even gone as far as you could or should have gone to achieve peace? So two examples. Both of these lead back to what Jesus is trying to bring out. This idea of this is what all the commands boil down to. I'm supposed to be loving God, but I'm also supposed to be loving my neighbor. And when you commit contempt of your brother, when you have unreconciled relationships, that's showing a lack of love for your neighbor. That means you devalue people. Think back a couple, couple minutes ago. The sixth commandment preserves the sanctity of human life. And so if you buy into what the sixth commandment really is about, it's about it's being pro-life, about being about life. God is about life. Then it says that you're supposed to love human life in general. Every poor, every person is important to God. That's Old Testament. That's also New Testament. Every person. Say every person. All right. You mean it? Even your enemies. That's what Jesus takes this. Look at verse 38. This is going to hurt some of y'all. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go up one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. and Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? I mean, that's rough right there. I mean, any of y'all got enemies? Here's a thought. Some of y'all saying, I ain't got no enemies. I love everybody. Everybody loves me. But here's the truth. You got enemies. I hate to, I hate to be in church telling you you got enemies, but you do. Here's the enemy. An enemy is anyone that goes against your desires. An enemy is anyone that resists your will, that's contrary to you, that's antagonistic. Guess who these are? That's your rebellious child. That's your distracted spouse. That's your critical friend. It's, it's somebody, it's anybody that goes against your desires. They are really working against you. 
They're your enemy. They're not letting you do what you want to do, how you want to do it. It's someone that flat out doesn't like you. It's a shame that you got to be in church telling you that people don't like you, but they don't. Some, some people don't like you. I don't mean that in the, you know, in the sense that there aren't a few people that do like you. But we live in a sinful world, and some people, just out of hate and evil, will not like you because you're just a good person. Here's what Jesus says in verse 44. He says, we're to do two things to our enemies. Oh, why did he say this to me? He says, we're supposed to love and pray for our enemies. What was Jesus drinking? There's a lot of ways we can define love. Here's a different one. Here's what love is. It's when we believe the best about a person and we're willing to wait through the worst. It's when we believe the best about a person and we're willing to wait through the worst. Thank God for my family. You should thank God for your family too because when your family actually believes the best in you, but more than that, they wait through the worst of you. That, folks, is love, and you don't deserve it, but that's just the, that's what love is. There are some people in your life that you really, really want to love you, but they don't love you like this. They don't believe the best in you. They only focus on all the stuff that you do wrong. They aren't willing to wade through your sin, your immaturity, your struggles, the process that you're in. And if you have a few people in your life that, I mean, they're not willing to hang in there with you, it may be fair to say they might not love you the way that the Bible prescribes love. We think that love is a feeling, and it actually is. But here's what 1 Corinthians says. 1 Corinthians 13 starts off with this. Love is patient and it's kind. When you go home today, thank God for your family that's sticking with you through all your mess, through all your stuff, because they're demonstrating love to you. And then at some point we realize, you know what? There are a few people who don't love me. And this is what, this is what the sin in us wants to do. We want to give them what, love, what, what hate deserves, right? I was like, if you're my enemy, I'm going to treat you like an enemy. I'm going to like pummel you. But how does God love? How does God love? You can say it. He loves us unconditionally. Here's what the Bible says. God extends grace. He extends grace to those people like you and me who don't deserve it. Here's an important point. If you're here today and you're, in, and you're not in relationship with God, guess what, folks? You are his enemy. He's counting you amongst those people who's working against his plan for his world. Not only that, you're a person that's working against God's own plan for you, for his love for you, for his grace toward you. And any kind of act that God is showing you in his life is just a demonstration of his grace to you, his kindness. And he's inviting you to come to him and receive his grace and to change your disposition from not being his enemy anymore to being his friend. Of reconciling yourself to him through the death and resurrection of his son. When you think of the person that you like the least, if you have people that you don't like a lot, Jesus is asking you to extend kindness. Here's a reflective question. What act of kindness can you extend to your enemies? And all of us have enemies. 
And I would ask you, are you, are you brave enough to admit that you have enemies? And are you courageous enough to go the, the next step and actually extend kindness to them? Are you submitted enough to God that you would do the thing you don't want to do? Be nice to somebody that's not been nice to you. Jesus also says, pray for your enemies. He says, love our enemies, verse 44. He also says we're supposed to pray for our enemies. And I would tell you, this is like graduate level Christianity right here. I mean, this, is, this, this has got to be one of those deep forms of love because, you, I mean, you just can't, like, happen upon it. you got to really mean to do it. It's, it's easy to, to do a kind act for your neighbor but, and not really be into it. You're like, you're, your neighbor's out of town. You might pick his newspaper up and just fling it in a yard and hope, you hit, hope it, hit, it, like, goes behind the shrub somewhere. Uh, your neighbor's trash can might be turned over and you see the animals sort of kind of digging in it and you don't want the neighborhood to look bad, so you, like, erect it and, and set it back up on the sidewalk. But to actually pray for your enemies, that's graduate level Christianity. That takes another level of commitment to you. And Jesus is calling us to that. Jesus calls us not just to to have surface level kindness, but to want the best for people. Why? Because he loves people. Jesus is for life. Even our enemies. And this is absolutely radical. But when you think about it, it's no more radical than what Jesus does for us on the cross. What does Jesus do for on the cross? He's being murdered. He's being murdered by his enemies. People like you and I that are not reconciled to him. And on the cross, as he's being murdered, he says these, he, he says these words. He says, Father, forgive them. He loves us through his death. He prays for us in his last words on the cross. His very enemies. And then, look what God the Father does. God the Father, in his anger, pours his anger out, not on you and I, because of our sin. He pours it out out on himself. He pours it out on his son, whom he loves. God takes your just anger, and he pours it out on Jesus, so that you, who deserve his wrath and his justice, will receive nothing but the love of a father. When you think about the sixth commandment in that way, I mean, it gives you a different perspective. If, if God would go to the extent of me being his enemy and that with compassion and grace, he would divert what I deserve from me and put it on himself. Perhaps that does something in you that might, makes you want to recognize the great grace that God has given to you. And I think that's what the gospel does. Let me wrap up. There's two things that the sixth commandment wants us to to come alongside it. Really, there's two transformations happening here. The second transformation, I'll get that one first, is personal. It's where God, by the Spirit, begins to soften the words that we speak to people so that when we see what God has done, with his own anger, that we should find compassion to, to be merciful and to curb our language with those with whom we are angry with. Instead of murdering them with our words, we would go to the extent and show them love and pray for them. When we realize God has a law that's binding on us as humanity, 
and that we fail in every way, yet he cancels the written code against me, it beckons us to, to just do away, to condemn, to, to condemn our own condemning words. But here's the, the second part of this, this uh, understanding of the sixth, the sixth commandment, a transformation of sorts. It's social righteousness, and that's what we, got, that's what we talked about in the first part of, uh, of my sermon here. Christians are called to preserve and protect life and to be advocates for our neighbor. That's where Jesus goes. That's, where the, that's, where the, that's the redemptive nature of the sixth commandment. We're called to be people that advocate for our neighbor. And if we're advocating for our neighbor, we're advocating for life. God gives us the privilege of being ambassadors for life. You and I are called to be advocates. It's not just a privilege, though. It's, it's a command. Really, he's commanding us to be pro-life. We can't just read the paper and pray. We can't just uh, see bad things happening in our world and say, man, I'm glad that's not happening to me. As Christians, we're not supposed to just select a few issues, even issues that are in the public eye and say, you know what, I'll support that one. I don't know what I think about that one. I think we're supposed to be people who Jesus called into real action. And if he calls us into action, we're supposed to act. Let's pray. Father, your word is uh, light and life to us. And we thank you that even in the, the laws of the Old Testament, we see the light. We see the light of your redemption, the light of your gospel. And we thank you for Jesus' words that takes this command, this sixth commandment, where you tell us not to murder. And he takes it to our heart. The, the, the source of life for us, our, our very hearts that would portend to evil. And Jesus commends us that we would love as he loved. And so, Lord, help us um, to do as Jesus has done, that we would love our neighbor as ourselves, that we wouldn't show contempt to our neighbor, that we would reconcile to those, even our enemies around us, and, uh, and that, Lord, we would be um, witnesses of your grace in the world, that you would use us as we edit our words and our actions around those to bring glory to yourself, that we'd exalt Jesus by doing what he's simply commanded us to do, and that, Lord, we would be advocates for life in all of its forms, that we use us um, really here locally, to, to, uh, to preserve the sanctity of human life. That's what you've called us to. We say yes. And we say that in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen.